You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations from authors, scholars and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes and whatever platform you might be listening from. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So I wondered if to start off, gentlemen, you could just tell us a little bit about who you are. Yeah, I can start. Well, first, thanks for having us, Andrew. We're really excited to join. Uh, and last week's podcast was great. So re- really excited to build on top of that as well. Uh, my name is Brad Hanlon. As you said, I am an analyst and program manager at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, where we aim to find policy solutions to authoritarian interference in democracies. And obviously, a big part of that is, is looking at disinformation and authoritarian disinformation targeting democratic institutions. Um, I personally come at this from a Russia perspective. Um, I've been interested in Russia since I was in undergrad. I I studied abroad there and studied the language. Uh, And sort of while I was tracking their revanchist foreign policy in places like Ukraine and Syria, I became very much interested in the informational side of what they were doing. That's when I first started tracking Russian state media, looking at the social media campaigns they were launching online to shape narratives around conflicts. Um, And and then that sort of culminated in the 2016 election when uh, I was focusing on that then. Uh, Since then, I've written a number of publications uh, for the Alliance for Securing Democracy on Russian disinformation, basically tracking their operations in in 2016 and in the inter-election period where we saw that they were very active uh, and that disinformation was not specifically focused on elections, but on targeting American democracy writ large. So my name is Bryce Burrows, and I am the new China analyst at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. So my purview is looking at everything that has to do with China in terms of the wide spectrum of malign influence of which disinformation is a part of it. I got interested in China from studying Japanese in high school and middle school. And then when I went off to college, I was able to switch to Mandarin. And upon doing that, I really enjoyed the culture, really liked being in China and Taiwan. I decided to move to Taiwan for several years, and I had the privilege of doing a couple of fellowships in China and Taiwan for Department of Defense. Um, Since I'm a new addition to the team, I'm currently working on a couple of projects related to Chinese misinformation. One of the things that I would like to just tackle before we begin 
So we've got a, a Russia watcher and a China watcher. So for people that don't have the luxury of doing what you're doing, how would you describe each of those entities that you're responsible for looking at? Like when we discuss China as a political system, as a social configuration, what exactly are we talking about? So I I think within the context of disinformation in watching China, it's been a very interesting evolution, especially since COVID-19 has struck. So I think it's important to preface this with remembering that China does have the ability to influence and interfere in the current election that is going on. However, most of their disinformation has been related to showing that China is moving ahead with COVID-19 containment, is working towards a vaccine, um, and combating and promoting disinformation related to Xinjiang, Tibet, Inner Mongolia, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. So those have mostly been the main focuses of Chinese disinformation, especially since COVID-19 has come about. And we've noticed at the Alliance for Securing Democracy that China has focused more on trying to promote narratives that are good on those previously mentioned topics, less so of election interference itself. However, there are a couple of examples of where China has used networks on Facebook and other social media to promote narratives that are in favor of the two presidential candidates right now in the United States. Well, the current Russian state is definitely an authoritarian kleptocracy um, in which power and wealth are concentrated at the top and cronies of the current regime are able to enrich themselves by receiving contracts and other goods from the state itself. I think Bryce makes a really important point that kind of highlights a difference between Russia and China when we look at them as as threat actors. They're acting on very different time horizons and from very different places, Uh, whereas China is a rising power acting from a a position of relative strength uh, with regard to the rest of the world order. Russia is very much not. They have a much shorter time horizon. By by many measures, they are a a lessening power, although they like to fancy themselves a great power. Uh, And you can see in their interference tactics and in their disinformation that their goal is less to assert themselves as some great system of governments and more to tear down democracy in order to make relative gains. One of the reasons I wanted to do that was to get a sense of how whatever it is those states are shapes or influences its disinformation campaign. So could you speak a little bit more to that? So I think what's important to remember about China is that it is still an authoritarian country. Um, it is based off of Marxist line of system. It does have an interesting hybrid of um, state capitalism that allows it to sort of project itself abroad in terms of economic coercion in a way that Russia might not be able to do, or even Iran or, or other you know, states are involved in election interference. So I think that's a key thing to remember when thinking about how can Chinese disinformation be spread. A big vector for that is within Chinese language media and other parts of the world. However, we've noticed that there's been an increased amount of engagement, especially on Twitter, in disinformation from Chinese government officials through foreign language for whatever 
specific region or country that those officials happen to be in or just to specifically target those audiences? I think this is a really good question from the Russia perspective. I think, especially in the United States, we tend to over attribute centralization to Russia's disinformation and interference efforts. Um, and while there is you know, something to be said about Putin himself and about the powerful intelligence services that operate in Russia and their capacity to carry out interference and disinformation campaigns, there is also a range of other actors that are acting towards the goals of the state. Um, and that's where the kleptocracy comes in with oligarchs who try to curry favor with the regime by pursuing its goals using their vast resources. So that's where you get something like the Internet Research Agency, which is more of a government-linked entity insofar as the funder is linked to Putin, um, but isn't per se controlled by the government itself. Um, and it, it creates a really interesting and difficult challenge for countering that type of disinformation because it's not all centralized uh, and attribution can be really tricky. I wondered if one of you wants to tackle what disinformation is. Like, what's a useful shorthand definition? I'm sure there's a bigger discussion, but for listeners that are just coming to this topic, what exactly are we talking about? This is one we definitely get asked a lot, and I think it's a really important question with a lot of interesting distinctions. Um, so there are a couple of terms that get used and, and thrown around sort of interchangeably, although there are important differences. The first is misinformation, which you'll hear a lot regarding uh, sort of domestic issues and COVID-19. Misinformation is sort of false information that's being spread around regardless of the intent behind it. Typically, the people spreading misinformation don't know it's misinformation. They think it's true. Uh, disinformation is sort of the sharp edge of that. Uh, that's when false information is being spread intentionally. So when we're talking about state actors pushing narratives that they know aren't true, that's why we talk about disinformation. Um, but one other really important thing I think to flag is that not all information operations that are carried out by state actors are based entirely on mis or disinformation. Sometimes there are seeds or kernels of the truth that are strewn throughout an operation in order to give it credibility and to help it spread further. Are China and Russia in any way in some concerted campaign to undermine Americans' belief in their political system? Are they operating at cross-purposes? Are they an alliance? Or are they just independent of each other, but generally working towards the same goal? I think it's important to remember that China has more resources than what the Russians and the Iranians have in terms of disinformation to undermine American democracy. So to an extent, yes, China does want to undermine American democracy. However, I think China's playing more of a long game and they're trying to get a sense of what could shake out in this election, who's going to be the next executive of the federal government. However, if you look at the way that China sort of operates in many different venues and, and many different ways, they're very good at testing out something and then stepping back a little bit. I think it's really important to remember that authoritarian information operations, whether it's from Russia or China, uh, and interference writ large isn't exclusively targeted at elections. I think every time we, we approach an election, it's obviously something we start to pay attention to again. That's the legacy of 2016. Um, but 
these types of operations have not slowed down in the wake of or the in-between times between elections uh, because the goal really isn't to shape the outcome of any particular election. And I think something that Russia and China have in common, whether or not they're coordinating on it is, is a different question, is that they are both aiming to undermine democracy as a system of governments itself. So the overarching aim isn't to support a particular candidate, but to discredit the idea of elections um, and to undermine faith in democratic citizens that their system is working and delivering for them. So I think that's a commonality that you see in Russia, China, and Iran, uh, definitely that we have tracked. I, th I think we tend to focus so much on which candidate certain information operations are supporting that we, we, we might miss the forest for the trees. And the big overarching theme here is that authoritarians are targeting democracy uh, because the existence of that system of governments is a threat to their regime's legitimacy. So it definitely when it comes to Russia and China, that's, that's something they have in common. A few years ago, I saw this Chinese diplomat at the British Cultural Center in Beijing, and I can almost hear his voice. He, he would say, we, we don't need to do this. You guys are doing a great job of that on your own. Why are you trying to blame us? Why are you scapegoating China? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. Uh, actually, at the Alliance, we just concluded a, a long-term report that we had worked on with part of a task force of really high-level former officials and experts on this to sort of discuss what democracies can do to offset authoritarian advances. And this was a subject that, that came up a lot. Um, it's something we've seen historically um, I mean, the Soviet Union was very keen to exploit um, America's failures in dealing with racism and segregation to make the point that democracy obviously isn't delivering what it says it delivers. Um, and there's a lot of weight to that. And sort of what we concluded in this task force is that if we want to better build resilience to foreign interference and better position ourselves to compete with authoritarians, we need to start at home. We need to ensure that our democratic institutions are what they say they are. We need to ensure that we're delivering for all citizens. And we need to address the domestic challenges that are leaving us vulnerable to foreign interference in the first place. Earlier this year, Facebook and some of the other social media platforms helped tackle a couple of information operation networks, uh, one targeting uh, voters and information consumers on the left and one targeting folks on the right. Um, and that's pretty typical in what we see with these operations. If you look at Russian state media, you know, RT is their flagship program. And in one channel, they managed to target the, the furthest right of supporters of the president and also far left supporters. Uh, and that's, that's always been the game that they try and play. If you look at uh, the Internet Research Agency's operations in 2016, they managed to stand up pages and accounts on Facebook that would get tens and hundreds of thousands of followers targeting both sides of almost every major political issue in the U.S. So they would have accounts that would be backing the president, accounts against the president, accounts that would be criticizing NFL players for kneeling during the national anthem, and accounts that would be supporting them. They, were, they had Blue Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter accounts. And, you know, it's a really, I think people tend to focus really heavily on the support for President Trump, but they were very much playing both sides of the ball. You know, there was one event they held immediately after the election, uh, Trump is not my president in New York City, and they managed to get as many as 10,000 people to show up in the streets. So it, it is really important, I think, for us to remember that the goal, you know, in the 
of what the Russians and the Internet Research Agency and all of their proxies are doing is not really to shape one specific election outcome. It is to divide and specifically polarize, to push people toward the furthest extreme ideas, to destroy that middle ground, to ensure that democracy itself just seems like an unattractive and ineffective solution. I think for China, the key is to remember that there are some similar goals that China does want. In many ways, China does view democracy as a threat to Chinese Communist Party rule, and that's why they do try to do some of these overt and covert ways of undermining democracy through disinformation and other means globally. However, I think it's important within the American context to remember and to reiterate that once again, China is trying to sit back and see what will happen in the United States. However, they have started experimenting with a little bit of the blueprint that Russia has laid out. So one way that they've done that is through creating Facebook networks that promote both presidential candidates. I think it's also important to remember that much of this misinformation and disinformation within democracies sort of spreads out or gets more intense as you get closer to China. So Taiwan is a huge target of Chinese disinformation, especially in the run-up to the 2020 election that was held in January, as well as other countries at China's periphery. However, there are other means that China has to meddle in American democracy. Most of that's related to um, economic coercion. And some of that could include influencing different localities or different state governments to abide by policies that might be more in the favor of China um, in order to get better economic carrots and sticks. They've done that a lot in Taiwan and other countries on China's periphery, but they're also starting to do that here in the United States. However, I think for the time being, they really want to test things out and see how things go and wait until the election comes about. And then if they ever needed to do that, they would be able to do it in a much more well-resourced way. I said this in last week's episode, when we do politics, we're one of 5,000, but when we do intelligence and espionage, we're one of a dozen. So I really want to make sure we stay part of that dozen and not one of the 5,000. So help us zero in on what's going on, what intelligence agencies are involved. Is it only intelligence agencies that are involved? Just break that down for us, uh, each of you. Could you have a go at it first, please, Bryce? Thank you for asking that question. I, I think it's very important. So within the context of China, I think in terms of direct information, disinformation, and China's intelligence agencies, we haven't seen as much as much activity that we can attribute back to China's main intelligence agencies, at least in the public non-classified, unclassified realm. So that'd be the Ministry of State Security, um, Public Security Bureau, some of the activities that Chinese People's Liberation Army carries out. However, we have noticed, especially in recent weeks and recent time, activities where you do have um, individuals that are PRC nationals, Chinese nationals, trying to stalk and monitor Chinese Americans or Chinese citizens here in the United States. That has risen. Um, however, we haven't seen as much direct disinformation from China's intelligence agencies. However, it's important to also mention that uh, parts of the Chinese Communist Party, specifically the United Front uh, Work Department, which is targeted towards providing um, a way of reaching out to Chinese diaspora communities globally, does engage in some of this activity. 
Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Uh, I think from the Russian perspective, we're seeing a couple of different vectors of influence targeting the 2020 election, uh, which is similar to what we saw in 2016, which was several overlapping operations from several different entities, some related to the intelligence services and, and some not. Um, we're seeing a very similar thing in 2020. Um, I, I think the first, which you're probably familiar with, is uh, Andrei Derkach, the Ukrainian politician that was sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department uh, for his role in working with Russian intelligence to really try and spread disinformation about candidate Joe Biden. Um, I think that's one most Americans are pretty familiar with, given given all of the the coverage around that. Um, I, I would say a, a second avenue for for influence and interference has been, and this is not related to the intelligence services. Uh, the continuation of disinformation from various proxies, whether that's the internet research agency standing up websites targeting Americans or Russian state media continuing to provide you know, their own biased narratives on developments in the political sphere in the U.S. Um, and then I would say the third and, and the one that concerns me the most is the recent news about Energetic Bear, the Russian hacking group targeting U.S. local and state governments. Um, this isn't exactly surprising behavior. Um, Energetic Bear is one of the ridiculous cybersecurity names we use for, for hacking groups, but they are a, a well-known hacking operation that is, is typically tied to the FSB, Russia's domestic intelligence service. Um, and their actions of, of probing state and local government networks are not exactly new either. We saw this in 2016. Um, but I think the really important thing and the really important threat that comes out of this, and this was all you know, became news last week when it was uh, first acknowledged by CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the FBI. Uh, the real concern isn't necessarily that these hacking groups, whether it's Energetic Bear or Fancy Bear, with the Grooves version, uh, I think the concern is that they won't actually be able to change votes, and they don't need to. They just need to create the perception that they could have. Uh, and this is what we call the perception hack, which is, uh, I think, what most in our field are, are very worried about going into the 2020 election. That's what I am worried about with Russian intelligence services is not their ability to actually change votes or, or shape outcomes, because I, that's way harder to do than people realize. And I, I think we've done a lot in the last four years to increase our security on that front. But their ability to convince Americans that they may have done that is really a, a scary threat. Um, and this was a plan that actually existed in, in, in 2016 for them. You know, th at this time it was Fancy Bear and grew Russia's military intelligence agency. You know, they were probing computer networks in various states uh, without changing vote tallies, without trying to touch voter registration information. Um, but they were very much prepared to publicly call into question the validity of the election results. Could you just expand a little bit more on the perception hack? That's quite fascinating. What are we talking about there? Yeah, it's it's definitely fascinating or terrifying. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe a little bit of both. Uh, the, the perception hack is is basically the concept that in a close contested election where the integrity may be questioned, you don't need to change votes or damage voter rolls to hack an election. All you need to do is convince people that you may have been able to do that, and they will do the rest of the work. So the fear is that Russian intelligence services that have been probing these networks could come out in that time period after election day or election night when we don't yet have confirmed results and 
spread disinformation that claims that they had rigged the election or that they had influenced outcomes. And they have the tools to, you know, potentially penetrate networks, but it's very unlikely they'd actually be able to change votes. But the average American doesn't know that. If they hear that Russians were, you know, probing or penetrating networks, they're going to be worried that they may have adjusted and maybe their vote didn't count. And We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Just want to focus in on Russia just a little bit more before we go to China. So you've mentioned the Internet Research Agency, Energetic Bear, um, FSB, GRU. For people that are new to this, can you just break all of that down? Yeah, yeah, happy to. I know there's a lot of different actors in this space, and sometimes the names are confusing and cheesy. Uh, but I think the important thing to take away from the range of actors in, in the Russia space is that, you know, one, it it isn't as centralized as we tend to think it is. And, and two, the range of actors and interest in carrying out disinformation operations or interfering in democracies just belies that the goal isn't just to influence elections. It is to undermine democracies everywhere all the time. Um, but to run through some of the actors, the Internet Research Agency uh, first gained fame after the 2016 election. Uh, they're often described as a troll factory, but it's essentially a company controlled by an oligarch in Russia, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who has close ties to Vladimir Putin. Um, and the company itself is essentially a a social media operation where they create fake personas and accounts and websites at times, try and solicit engagement with journalists, all of this to spread disinformation narratives uh, and typically targeting partisan issues in their in their countries that they're they're choosing to target. So in the United States, they've done a number of operations targeting different sides of political debates on a range of issues. Uh, so that is that is the IRA. Um, outside of that, you definitely have actors in Russia's intelligence services who are quite familiar with the tactics of foreign interference. Um, I think your listeners are probably quite familiar with uh, the historical, um, how to say it, skills of the KGB when it came to interfering in democracies. You know, I, in the lead up to 2020, I often think back to the 1984 Olympics where we saw the KGB 
sending threatening letters that they claimed were from the KKK to Olympic athletes from African and Asian countries. And I always think back to that because the end goal there is very much the same as the end goal here, which is to paint America as a failed state, uh, to draw out our failures and make democracy look bad and unattractive to citizens who may be living somewhere like Russia where their democracy is not, is not developed. Um, so it, in that bed, I think there's a, there's several different actors within the Russian intelligence services that have played parts in the past in interference and in disinformation. Typically, when the intelligence services are involved, we're looking more at their cyber operations, uh, which they use to enable information operations and disinformation. Inside of that bucket, there are a couple different actors that are active. And sorry, this is so complex. Um, Fancy Bear, I think, is probably the most famous. That is the Russian military intelligence agency's hacking unit. Um, they're also known as APT-28, or Advanced Persistent Threat-28, which is how the U.S. government actually identifies these actors. Um, and, and, and sorry to interrupt, are they actually a part of the Russian military, or are they affiliated, or are they are one or two steps removed? My understanding is they are a part of GRU. Uh, Russian military intelligence, um, they are a unit within that. Um, and there definitely are different hacking collectives and groups that have more of like a further step away from actual Russian government agencies. But I think Fancy Bear is quite closely tied to the Russian military intelligence uh, in the same way that Cozy Bear, another hacking operation, is tied to SVR, Russian Foreign Intelligence Service. Uh, and then energetic bear is tied typically to the FSB, Russia's domestic intelligence service. Just one final question, and then we'll move back to China. I guess the question here, if it's not just about putting your thumb on the scale to make sure that one party wins at the expense of another, what's the overall objective here? Why do they want to undermine democracy? Um What's the bigger reason here? Is What's driving all of this and what's the ultimate goal? To, to steal from some much more articulate and intelligent colleagues that I have, uh, foreign interference is not a tactic, it's a strategy. Uh, the goal of undermining democracies isn't just some backlash or, or revenge for the Cold War. It is very much, a, as you know, Russia and other authoritarians see, integral to maintaining regime stability in a world where there is an open information environment. The existence of democratic institutions and the spread of open information and liberal values is, is a threat to their regime stability. And they have to act, or they feel that they have to act proactively to prevent that, to make democracy look like a, you know, an invalid form of governments is, is a way of shoring up their power at home and portraying to the rest of the world that, hey, maybe democracy isn't the answer. And to their own citizens that, hey, maybe you shouldn't want this version of government. And Brace, what, what's China's ultimate goal in all of this? I think it's important to remember that in the case for China and political leadership in Beijing, the key for them is very similar to what Brad mentioned for Russia, which is the existence of a strong democratic United States is, and also democracies on China's periphery is a bit of an existential threat for political leadership in Beijing. However, I think where it differs from Russia is that China, for the most part, 
isn't trying to resort to the same exact sort of tactics that um, Russia has in terms of being very sharp about disinformation, being very active about it in the United States to the, to the same extent that Russia has. And I think the best way to put it would be that Beijing, and by that I mean the Chinese Communist Party leadership and leadership of the government of China, really wants to ensure that they can promote their own narratives abroad, that China is doing better than the West, China was able to beat COVID-19, uh, China has a better overall si uh, system of governance that's more superior to democracy. And in some cases, and in, in some different dialogues I've been involved with, I've gotten to see government officials from peripheral countries echo those sort of statements because of Chinese state capitalism, because of the way that they're able to control um, COVID-19 in retrospect. So I think that's what's important to remember is that China does view democracy and the existence of it as a threat to the Chinese Communist Party. However, they aren't doing the same tactics that Russia's doing, at least here in the United States to the same extent, but they are very active with democracies around China. Is their goal similar to Russia's in the sense that they're not necessarily favoring one political party over another? They're more, they're trying to undermine faith and democracy as a system of government? Yes, I, I, would, I would put it in those terms in that for the moment, they still want to wait and see what's going to come out of this election. Um, there's been many debates within the China Watcher community about whether or not some of the policies that the Trump administration has had on China will be are more effective than whatever a potential Biden administration have and vice versa and how Beijing would want um, both to happen. However, I do think that their ultimate goal is to ensure, regardless of who wins the election, that democracy is not seen as legitimate. I can almost hear someone else's voice, and I'm going to channel that voice to give a couple of questions. One of them would be, well, you're telling us all of this stuff that China and Russia are doing to interfere in our elections. What the hell are we doing to give some of this back to them? Are we interfering in their elections? Are we trying to undermine faith in their systems of government? And if we're not, why why the hell are we not? Yeah, I, I can take a stab at this. That's definitely, I've heard that question a lot uh, from family members and friends. Um, and I think it's, a, it's an important point to discuss. Um, you know, we don't want to engage in the same tactics that authoritarian actors are using to undermine democracy mainly because if we are adopting those same tactics, then we are undermining democracy ourselves. Uh, so replicating them or trying to fight back on their same terrain, it's, it's a losing battle. If the conflict is between authoritarianism and democracy, we should be shifting that battle space to somewhere where we have the advantage. The best thing we can do to go, I, I don't wanna say the offensive because I, I don't think an offensive defensive construct is the right way to look at this, but the best thing we can do is double down on our values and reinvest in democracy. So strengthen ourselves at home, rebuild our institutions where they need to be strengthened and embrace transparency and openness as great assets for us and strategic advantages when it comes to competing with authoritarians. So that means, you know, at home protecting our information space, but also 
supporting open information spaces abroad, uh, making sure that an open and free internet continues to exist, because that's something authoritarians see as a major threat to themselves, and support for independent media and investigative journalism in closed spaces around the world. You know, the more that we are giving the citizens of autocracies the tools to circumvent the information control that's going on within their countries, the more than we are putting autocracies on the back foot instead of just constantly being on the defensive. So obviously in the case of China, having a free and open internet is viewed as a threat, hence why China has the Great Firewall, and having an independent um, media is also viewed as a threat in China, where for the most part, media either goes back to the government or the Chinese Communist Party in some sort of way. I think what's really important to, to highlight within the context of China um, is that some of the best tools that we have as Americans to, I wouldn't say be on the offensive, but to make our democracy a little bit more resilient and also promote some of the independent journalism that you're not going to get within China or Russia is by go ahead and utilizing the different tools that we have with Voice of America, Radio Free Asia, and in the case of Russia, that would be Radio Free Europe and a couple of other similar um, US-backed uh, journalistic outlets. I'm just going to use that voice to ask one more question. How do two huge, powerful countries with a long history of imperialism, of invading and subjugating smaller neighbors, somehow manage to view themselves as victims who need to go on the offensive? I think within the context of China, it's important to remember that in for China, the century of humiliation to Western powers has been a huge driving factor for why China feels that it needs to um, go ahead and reclaim its space as a powerful country in the global stage. China was the world's largest uh, economy for a long time, for several centuries, uh, sorry, several millennia. Uh, before you know the industrial revolution in the West and and other things like that, and Western powers have had you know a bad legacy of and including Japan of imperialism in China towards Chinese people, etc. So in some ways, it's allowed or influenced nationalism within China itself, has driven a lot of the rhetoric and tactics that you're seeing, mostly targeted towards ethnic minorities within China, and then also directed at Taiwan. That is a sort of revanchist sort of um, way of looking at the world, similar to how Moscow does. Give us the Cliff Notes version of the century of humiliation. So the century of humiliation runs from the Opium Wars and through the Boxer Rebellion. Several different conflicts that have happened in which uh, the Qing Dynasty, the last imperialistic dynasty in China, was subjugated to frankly, sharp and malign influence by Western and Japanese powers. Um, and that, in some cases, that included uh, dividing up aspects of China's territory to become colonies of Japan or extensions of Western powers like the Shanghai International Settlement. Um, and in other ways, that just included losing wars to Western powers or to Japan. I think that's probably the best way to, to sum it up. I think there is some interesting historical comparisons, but I think the most important thing to look at with Russia is just the nature of the current regime itself. Um, you look at Vladimir Putin himself, who was a former KGB officer during the Cold War, 
much of the power brokers that he's brought with him into power, the Soloviki, are all former KGB or, or former intelligence or defense officials. Um, so their perspective on geopolitics was framed at a time where the United States and democracy writ large was the number one enemy. Um, and I, I think that it's that's a perspective that's not easy to shake. I think it's uh, very much colored the way they perceive a lot of U.S. foreign policy actions since the end of the Cold War. Um, and it still very much dominates the way that they see the world now. Um, it's very much a zero-sum zero game of geopolitics in which they are they have to compete with the United States. They have to compete with democracy in order to continue to exist. If any listeners get those questions at the Thanksgiving table, they now have some <laughs> food for thought. And is it only the United States that Russia and China are targeting for disinformation? Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question. I think ahead of the U.S. election, we tend to focus too much in on ourselves. Um, but one thing we've really, really covered at the Alliance for Securing Democracy is that this is not just about the United States. It is about democracy as a system of government. And you know, we focus mostly on the transatlantic space, but we've tracked Russian information operations in, I think, 27 different countries across that space. Uh, and while the instances that occur in the U.S. are more famous, there are times when they target democracies in Europe where it's much more egregious. In the case of China, that's definitely um, what they do is they like to test things within their near abroad. So. As I mentioned, Taiwan tends to bear, bear the brunt of a lot of Chinese disinformation. I think the next question is, so we know that China and Russia are involved in disinformation. We have discussed the United States and some other democracies. Did they interfere in each other's internal politics? I don't think we see that very much. I think... Uh... There's a maybe an honor amongst thieves code with authoritarians interfering. Um, but a lot of that also has to do with the, the main goals of interference are to undermine democracy. And there isn't much work to be done for China to undermine democracy in Russia and, and vice versa. Um, so that <laughs> that's probably a, a large reason why you, why you don't see activity on that front. I think there are better targets for them to focus on. How well is the United States or how well are democracies placed for the cyber contest? Give us a sense of that new confrontation, which isn't about armoured divisions on the North German plain. Give us a sense of the order of battle, so to speak, and that new battle space. I think that's that's a really good, really good thing to drill down into. Um, I think the competition between autocracies and democracies is multi-dimensional and a lot of it occurs in as you said non-military domains so we're looking at competition in the information space in technology development in the economic sphere and in the political sphere we've seen that authoritarians have taken the initiative in many of these spaces while democracies have mostly sat on our hands, right? Uh, I mean, authoritarians have seized on the cyber and information spheres in ways that we haven't. They're investing heavily in emerging technology development, and they're doing their best to shape the norms and standards around those things in international institutions to ensure that things like the future of the internet and future technologies are coherent with autocracies instead of democracies. Um, fortunately, I think Despite that we've allowed authoritarians to shape the battle thus far, democracies have inherent long-standing advantages. 
you know, our system of governments of governance is more appealing. Open and free information spaces bring about better policy solutions than the top-down control that you see in authoritarian governments. Our innovation economy has been much more effective historically at producing the next technologies and having and creating the most innovative businesses in the world and attracting the talent that it needs to do so. And so I think there are a lot of things that we can seize on and a lot of advantages that we have if we so will ourselves to use them in this competition. Um, Both of you gentlemen are at the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Are democracies in crisis? As, as democracy in crisis. So we used to hear about the second wave, the third wave of democracy. Everybody was going to be a Democrat. Every country was going to adopt this system. And now it seems to be, uh, oh, hold on. Maybe we're not quite so sure. Is that is that true? I mean, I think in the past few decades, we've seen a retreat in democratic values. I think it's you have to check me on this. I think the 14th consecutive year that Freedom House's report on this has said there's been a retraction of civil liberties around the world. Um, and that's the culmination of a lot of different, you know, incidences and challenges that have led to that. But I don't think democracy overall is in crisis. As I said before, we retain a lot of advantages in this competition. Um, on paper, we are the more attractive system of governments, we're more effective at marshalling resources, and in the long term, much more effective at gaining soft power and citizens who actually want to live in our societies. Um, that's a tremendous advantage. Just one final question. I wondered if there's anything that you think it's important for our listeners to take away or to think about with regards to intelligence, espionage, and disinformation with regards to each of the respective countries that you focus on. I, I could start, and I would be remiss if I didn't speak to the U.S. voter. I would ask those consuming information around the election to do a couple of different things to make sure that we're best mitigating the effect of Russian disinformation or whatever their intelligence services do decide to do in the aftermath of the election. The first is to be patient. Um, we're not going to have final results on election night, and that's okay. That's not a delay. That is the mechanisms of our democratic process at work, ensuring that we have a secure and accurate result. Uh, the second thing I would ask is to be cautious. Uh, information operations, Russian disinformation especially, are aimed to elicit rapid emotional responses. They want you to see something, react emotionally, and click without thinking. So I would ask, think before you click, before you retweet or share. Double check the provenance of information that you're seeing online and look to trusted sources in the media and government for information on the threats that we face. And the last thing that I would say, that I have to say, is vote. Trust in our institutions. Um, we have plenty of local and state election officials from both sides of the aisle who are doing their absolute best to make sure we have a free, fair, and secure election. Look to them for information on voting processes and make sure to stay engaged even after the election. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.